Welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. Each episode of Tech Done Right focuses on people in tech talking about interesting problems. Today, we're talking about testing uh, with two people that I consider experts in the field. They're going to hate me for saying that already. On our panel, we have Sam Fippen. Uh, Sam is an engineer at DigitalOcean. He's British, but he lives in New York now. Uh, he's also known for being Justin Searles at Ruby conferences, as well as his work at being a member of the RSpec core team. He describes himself as having a love-hate relationship with computers, like I suppose many of us. And we also have Justin Searles, who I guess is occasionally known for being Sam Fippen at Ruby conferences. Nobody knows bad code like Justin Searles. He writes bad code effortlessly, and he told me to say that. Uh, it's given him the chance to study why the industry has gotten so good at making bad software, and he also co-founded Test Double, an agency focused on fixing everything that's broken about software. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. Hello. I wanted to talk to the two of you to have a conversation about testing that would go a little bit beyond how do you do TDD, uh, is TDD dead on life support, zombified, anything like that, and actually talk about how we approach testing, we approach, you know, the things that we may still disagree on, the things that we find challenging. So maybe start by talking about the kinds of things that you see as being intermediate level problems in testing, the, the things that happen after you get the hang of the RSpec DSL and after you've figured out the basics of the TDD structure or how it, that works with your workflow. Like what is it, what is the next kind of thing that you start to have problems with? Sam and I are both very deferential people who don't like to talk too much. So Sam... <laughs> Why don't you why don't you kick us off? That's very rarely been my experience with either one of you, but go ahead. <laughs> I I, th I think we we both were just like respecting each other a little bit too much there. Um so I think one of the problems I see a lot of teams encounter is um assuming you have to test at every level that your testing framework presents to you. So like in Rails, you write your capybara feature spec and your integration test and your routing test and your view test and your controller test and your model test. And you know, you, you feel like for every feature, you have to put something in every single one of those buckets. And I think that's not the case. And I see a lot of teams struggling with that because the framework sort of make it so attractive uh, and so easy to do that, even though in the long term, that results in a lot of redundant testing, a lot of slow testing, uh, hitting systems that you don't need in every single test. One of the things that I would say about that is you see teams that have mastered testing and really get into testing. And I think the next level struggle is my test suite is now 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because every individual test, because we've added five tests for each feature and every individual one is only a tiny little bit, but after six months or a year, they really start to add up. Well, there's a silver lining to that scenario, at least, because it means that your business is successful enough to have warranted that slow of a test suite that lived long enough to get that big. And uh, if it is slow, then, you know, Noel and I both work at agencies that would love to help you make it faster. <laughs> that being test double and table XI, respectively. Well, actually, irrespectively. But my intermediate idea, I would like to draw an analogy just in the hopes of, like, the audience, like, perhaps resonating to JavaScript churn. You know, everyone's always joking about how JavaScript frameworks and build tools are changing constantly, and it creates a lot of noise for the team. So the team's job is to build an application. They have the secondary job, which is they have to, like, you know, actually build and deploy the application in an automated fashion. So it's not, like, really their core responsibility, but it is a responsibility, so they figure out, you know, how to do that sort of in their spare time. But because there's 50 different options and 50 different approaches that are always changing, 
not only do they have to learn how under a strained condition, they have to debate what's the right way to do it under that time constraint as well, all the while being frustrated by the fact. And even once they've settled on something, it's the case in JavaScript frameworks and stuff that you can at least clearly articulate the why of what you chose what you did. But I feel like testing is almost analogous, but it applies to every single language where we struggle with like, okay, so how do we test this? How do we test this? How do we test this? How do I handle my test data? How do I get this thing automated in like a headless environment? And once you've answered all those how questions, not only do you have all the same back and forth debate, but like you actually do have to bring your own answer for like, why did I test that? Like, what's the value statement? What's the return on investment for this test? And most teams just don't have the time <laughs> to seriously sit and ponder that question. It's it's considered good enough, if not excellent, to even get to the point that everything is tested. Sure. I think that a lot of teams figure like there is no negative value to a test. Right. And that the, once the test is there, and I, I, I sometimes I like to conceptualize this, that the tests have value sort of in two time frames. Like there's a kind of test that has value while you're developing a feature to prove that the feature is working. And then there's a slightly different kind of test that has value over the infinite life cycle of the application. And they're not quite the same thing. Right. And I think there's not a lot of real in the sort of tutorial material that exists. There's not a lot of good communication around like where that pain really comes from. Right. So like we sort of talked about runtime earlier and that's, that's one cost, but another one is like you have to maintain your test suite just like you have to maintain your application. But your test suite is like not tested. Right. Something some people like to say, which means that like changes to it kind of have to be done much more carefully. And I know, I think a lot of teams who are sort of intermediate on testing treat, treat the test suite as very sacred and are very wary to like delete any part of it for any reason with the assumption that everything in there has value. Well, if you don't know why something exists, then you certainly don't know when it's safe to delete it, or you have no value system by which you can even judge, you know. Right. I think that if the team is in any kind of legacy code state where there is code that they don't really have the context of when it was created, then they're going to, I think, necessarily be really cautious about deleting tests. Right. Absolutely. And it's not to say that that caution is unwarranted, but like a sort of a hallmark of, I think, more advanced testers is having a series of critical lenses through which to look at those things and begin to construct a story for what can and cannot go away. We have all sort of mentioned tests having value and tests having costs and, and the story of why you would write a test. Like what kinds of things do you think of when you say, I'm, I'm looking at this feature and I'm going to write this test because what are some of the things that go into that process for you? Well, I think that there are generalized answers that we could give to this that are kind of, you know, almost prescriptive, like in a holistic way. Like, for instance, I could respond to your question by saying, well, if you're thinking about writing like a, a feature test or an integration test or whatever you want to call it, like something that like runs the system under a relatively integrated context, then the value that I hope to get from that test typically is make sure everything's plugged together right and make sure that I can like, you know, tie a bow around like, you know, a basic workflow such that I could like walk away with confidence that some some stakeholder can accomplish a basic task. And what I would avoid and what I'm like trying to imply I wouldn't do in that scenario in terms of it just being too costly and would result in a, a runtime of, you know, many times that first test would be to avoid testing edge cases, avoid testing sad path items or extreme cases, avoid testing like entire tables of input data versus output data, because A, 
it's really integrated, so it's really slow. And B, when those things fail, they could fail for more reasons. And when they fail, the explanation you get from the from the test, the feedback you get from the failing test is not going to be very localized to the source of what changed to break that test. So in general, for the high-level stuff, I focus on just making sure everything's plugged together right. And if you want to get coverage of like the low-level details, which you should, make that as local as possible to the object or function that actually implements that behavior. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that one thing that people have trouble with in that context, certainly it's something that I kind of fight with on anything that's moderately complicated, is I have an end-to-end test. And then I have like some object that is probably, if it's a workflow or if it's an action or something like that, if it's some unit of feature, then I probably have an object that is, or a method that is running that entire feature flow. More or less, like I'm, like that feature test is some that that integrated test is somehow calling some feature, and I think where where people get duplicative is like I think that it's really easy to see how you test the end to end thing from outside with Capybara or whatever. I think it's easy to see how you test the individual these individual small units that do tiny pieces of it, and I think that testing that like intermediate piece that is like some method that is directing traffic, whether it's a controller or some sort of service object or some sort of method. That testing that method without it feeling duplicative of either the unit test or the, or the end-to-end test, I think that is hard. I think that people aren't used to thinking of that kind of control piece as a unit in and of itself. And doing that correctly involves creating test doubles and isolating that off from the, from the things that it's calling in a way that I think a lot of people find not super intuitive. And you know what? That whole middle of the pyramid, middle of the call stack is where almost all of this pain comes from. And I agree, yeah. the only way to solve it is through conscientious design. So if you look at like Gary Bernhardt's excellent talk boundaries, he introduces a meme called functional core imperative shell where like all the branching in your application and the loops and all those different like functional constructs and control flow and stuff get pushed as far down into pure functions that are easy to test as possible so that when you have the controller uh, or that traffic cop in the middle, you can still have a test for it, but because it should be basically imperative without any of those loops, without any of the ifs and else's, a single pass-through test is going to make sure that the thing is calling everything it needs to without test doubles. Totally. I think one thing that you sort of glance by that didn't go quite into that, Noel, is um, that like for things like Rails controllers, it's usually very hard to like sort of as Justin alluded to, or the pain comes in that middle. It's very hard to like sensibly structure a test that feels like either isolated enough or integrated enough without being redundant. For those things, because they're sort of so glued into the Rails framework. And, and Rails was not designed with that workflow in mind. Right, absolutely. But like, this is also true, you know, for things like uh, Ember, Django, and Python, and many other frameworks besides, right? And so but you all have these kind of controller middle objects that are tightly right. integrated into the framework and therefore kind of hard to feel like you're meaningfully testing them. But they all they all give you test helpers for that layer because a framework like Ember, it's giving you these 10 basic types. So when they think about building test helpers, they're like, let's build a test helper for every single type. And Rails did the same thing and most of these frameworks do the same thing. And so there's like this implicit behavior that people assume that that should be tested as well. And what's interesting with, for that is that Rails has deprecated controller tests. Not for the reason I think that you or I would say that they should have deprecated controller tests, but they did they did deprecate it. But, uh, that's not technically true. They uh, 
deprecated assigns and assert template, but not the actual controller testing. So they deprecated what people were doing in controller tests. Yes. Yeah. When I think about this, like to Sam's point, if you can't construct an object easily or put something under a relatively isolated test easily, then you should use it like a real user would use it and not like you're just testing a method, right? So like, like it, this idea of symmetry between our tests and our code is really, really desirable in general because it's easy to organize. But if you have a controller and you have a function inside that controller and you just want to write controller tests of exactly that function, then it's incumbent upon that test to figure out how to instantiate a controller. And none of us on this call know how to instantiate a controller. In fact, that would be a great technical interview, like an hour-long pair session with like an interview candidate and say, just instantiate a controller in Rails and watch them flail for 60 minutes. That's true. That becomes an argument or part of the argument to have as little code in that layer as possible. Right. Because it's not real code. It's not object-oriented, right? It's like this weird, wacky DSL that looks like classes and methods, but it's right. not really under our control at all. Right. And, and you can imagine a framework, like, um, there are other frameworks where that layer is more object-oriented. At least I think there are. <laughs> I mean, it, it's worth noting, right, that, like, what controller testing used to do is basically expose the, like, instance variables of an object to a test, which is, like, something you would never ever do under normal circumstances. So yeah, I sort of, I guess like the sort of point here is that because your code is inextricably linked to framework code, your test sort of ends up testing the framework if you put a bunch of stuff in there as well. And that's like the framework is already tested. And so much of that work is kind of redundant. For a long time, the purpose of controller tests on most of the teams that I that I was on that used them was to make sure that the view was getting variables that it was expecting. Right. I mean, in the context of a traditional Rails application, that's, a, I suppose, a useful thing to know, but it's also a relatively slow test for the amount of value it provides. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, request specs, which or uh, integration tests, uh, which have now sort of replaced controller tests, right. both faster and do more work, which is like kind of ridiculous, but uh, is also super good. But for, for anyone listening, right, we did talk about tests having costs, and then we talked about two of the most costly kind of tests <laughs> without really like contextualizing. Like, yes, it's tied to the framework, but like at, at the end of the day, if somebody's listening to this, I would tell them skip controller tests, even skip request specs, and just do, you know, like start with really, really good isolated unit testing, start with really good you know, smoke testing of the full stack that uses the thing just like a real user does. Right. And only after you've gotten really good at those, then you can start even asking about those middle layers. And, and rather than just look at some book or look at some frameworks uh, test help guide. Yeah, I, t I, I mean, like, I, I, I tend to agree with that. Like, that, that is certainly pretty consistent with my actual practice right now in Rails. I'll write an integration test and then start pushing the function as much of the functionality as I can into objects, ideally not even active record objects. Um, that I can just test. So I, I actually, I think it's it's worth uh, de-jargonizing one of the things we're talking about, which is those isolated unit tests. Because I think one thing that people sort of assume is that the moment they're instantiating like a single Ruby object instead of like hitting, you know, the rail stack, that's a unit test. But we're using it to mean something very specialized here, right? Which is, uh, you're only testing one production object 
and all of the other pieces of data, objects, and behavior in your test are like not from your production code. They're from some test environment, right? Right. So possibly they're they're being created with test double. They're being stubbed with test doubles, or right. the data is coming in. You know, canned data is coming in in some way, and you're specifically trying to test. You have an object under a test or, or a method under test, and you're really the the idea is that the the only place that that test can fail is if something is wrong with that particular method or object and that issues elsewhere in the code won't won't affect it. Right, exactly. When we say isolated unit tests, yeah, we're exactly talking about single object, single method, and everything else either comes from your test framework or something you've invented uh, in your tests, depending on the power of your testing framework. As well as the nature of the unit, right? Like, so for instance... You guys might talk about an isolated unit test of an of a method on an active record object, or at least when Noel mentioned uh, having like canned data, you were feeding it. It intimated that. Whereas for me, an isolated unit test, I gave up long ago trying to even approach isolating a, an active record object because there's, from the superclass, you get the entire universe, including the assumption that you're connected to a database. Right. Not to mention all the framework gunk. So when I say isolated unit test, I'm mostly thinking 80% pure functions. <laughs> and those are just simple, plain old Ruby objects of plain old methods. So I guess, so there's there's two things that this reminds that, that I want to maybe touch on. Actually, well, one of them is something that, Justin, you told me at one point, which is that you felt like when you were working in an environment like Rails, you couldn't use testing for domain discovery because Rails was basically controlling your domain discovery. And I want to come back to that in a second. Because the other thing that we is, is we start talking about if you are like a intermediate developer, an intermediate tester, and you've learned how RSpec works and you think you know how Rails works, and now we start talking about isolated unit tests and service objects and, and things like that and pulling things out of active record. And I, I think that there's a, a gap there of like, how do we help somebody to make the first steps towards structuring their applications that way? You know, even when it means pulling away from what is, you know, quote unquote, the Rails way, I think that that starts to feel, that starts to make people a little bit nervous and they don't quite feel like they know how to do it. And I'm not sure that we do a really great job of explaining how to do it or or, or why to do it. So yeah, I agree. I think sort of necessarily following this approach that we're discussing where you have uh, some integration tests and that a bunch of highly isolated unit tests actually makes you write Rails applications that look like Rails applications that nearly nobody writes. Like, in practical terms, I don't think I've ever encountered a project that somebody else started that, like, was amenable to the style of testing we're discussing. In practice, it leads you to have a whole layer of objects where your business logic is that are not active record objects. People call them a million different things, but basically it means you don't put logic in active work. You don't subclass a framework type. That's the simplest probably like... Right. Or include the framework module or you know... It's hard to write Rails without having subclasses of active record pop up. You just don't put logic in there. Here's what, here's how I would... To, to that hypothetical intermediate developer who's trying to follow like what the hell we're all talking about, I think the way that I would frame it is view all of the code that's inside a file that either Rails ordained for you or that extends a Rails uh, super type View all of that as configuration and view Rails as a DSL for configuring whether it's a controller or a router or, uh, you know, a model callback and don't add anything that represents actual behavior of your application. Like that all 
assume has to go and lib in its own plain old Ruby object. And if you start carving off like configuration versus behavior along those lines, then I think that gives at least people a value system for starting to understand what goes where. And what's kind of interesting about that is that other frameworks have that distinction. Like, you know, a lot of the Java frameworks make that distinction between business objects and data objects. And Rails was created in part to kind of get away from that, from having what I think DHH would say is, is an extraneous level of complexity that then we, you come to a certain point and you realize actually that's not an extraneous level of complexity at all. It's a, it's a kind of a necessary level of complexity or at least a necessary or a valuable separation to make in the code. I take what the thing you just said is the word necessary. So like it is definitely easier to like just read a like straight up vanilla, the rails way rails app and understand exactly what is going on. The reason we shun in, you know, these layers of abstractions, these isolated unit tests, all of this is to make change easier. And that's definitely a trade-off, right? So like, I, I, I guess the thing I'm saying is like, I don't think the position of like doing the Rails way is necessarily invalid. It just represents a different yeah, set. It's not. The Rails way comes with a set of, a, a pretty focused set of trade-offs and practices that I think work really well. Uh, for certain kinds of problems and certain kinds of approaches and don't necessarily lead themselves to a really isolated test suite or perhaps long-term, you know, perhaps keeping the long-term cost of change low. Right. So, so when I'm talking to like a client, for example, and helping them plan like how they want to architect even just like within Rails, like a Rails app, you know, questions of what's your level of investment in this code base? If it's low, then Railsway is almost certainly better because there's going to be a lot of Ruby as you're able to figure it out. If you're more focused on the short-term time to delivery, then you're focused on the long-term maintainability, sustainability, changeability of the thing, then Railsway is probably better. But like if you've been burned in the past, and this is a rewrite because like what you found was going things the easy way to just go Railsway, go vanilla, and then try to get to a place where the where the code base was more changeable and mutable and controllable and like the tests were able to be run fast in isolation and all that jazz. That's a really hard transition to make. And I think the reason that the three of us tend to talk about that isolated test case a lot is A, we see a lot of really complex, convoluted, you know, rescue projects. And B, to anyone who's just starting with Rails, on day one, Railsway is always going to be the easier way. And that's why you have to just plan conscientiously. And, and I think that one of the problems with, oh, you know, this sort of application design and this sort of test design and a lot of the things that we kind of think of as agile practices is that if you half-ass them, they really punish you. And I think that one of the things that, that gets in the way of people getting really comfortable with testing is that they start and they want to like dip a toe in and they kind of partially do test-driven development, but then they kind of don't do it all the way or they don't do it consistently or they create isolated objects sometimes and not other times or, or in some other way that they kind of don't fully commit to it. And then it gets really almost harder than if you hadn't even started in the first place. Totally. So I think one of the things you sort of touched on there is like going from maybe having tried testing a bit to like going on into full on TDD. And I know that like, Every, nearly everyone I've seen who like tries to like do strongly academic TDD struggles with it when they start because it requires such a different style of like the actual code that you write. And most people don't realize that 
why that's happening is the tests are forcing them to change their actual programming behavior. And they, they actually feel like they're bad at testing because their code is changing when what's actually happening is like the tests that they're writing are fine and it's just forcing them to change the way they write their code. And that like, and they're a little bit resistant to that. Yeah. And, but because they assume the way they've been writing code before is like, Fine, or perhaps a better way to phrase it is like amenable to this this style of writing tests, and then it's not. And like this, there's some sort of cognitive dissonance there, and I, I see nearly everyone who tries it go through it. <laughs> I think that we, as as thought leaders, Justin, <laughs> I think we need to be always careful of words like should and value judgments. Um, you know, Sam, you called out the word necessary before, and the reason that we're so wishy washy about this is that it's not necessarily that TDD or real rigorous approaches to testing make your code better. I would argue it makes it more usable because the code is used in more contexts. But that's, again, another trade-off, right? Like, like if you have, like, an object that's instantiated 20 times by a test and one time in production, uh, is it better that it's easy to instantiate? Well, it is because it's more testable, but it's also still just called the one time in production. The benefit there is that if all your objects look that way, then all your objects are brain-dead simple for using by other people once they know that style. But they have to learn that style, and that's unfortunately just not the norm either, right? So it's not that, like, TDD is going to get you to a better design necessarily, but it will get you to a design, hopefully, that, like, normalizes over time so that it's, like, you know, less covered in, you know, complex patterns and convoluted means of, of creating objects and, and, and all the jazz that you typically see in your typical big application. One of the ways I often say that is that like TDD approach leads you to small methods that don't have side effects that don't really relate on any, relate to each other and small objects that, that interact in very constrained ways. And the reason that that happens is because it's easier to test those things. Right. It's easier to test things when you have a unit that you can wall off that is small. And it also almost like coincidentally turns out that the same features that make things testable also make thing makes code more amenable to a certain kind of change. Yeah, I think one of the things I observe when I'm doing like I guess what you could call for lack of a better term academic TDD that like I'm I'm sort of very sensitive to the the number of things I have to set up like in order to get my test to pass and if that goes above a certain threshold, which is usually like a very small number of like collaborative objects, I'm like, there's probably another object screaming to be let out here in the like thing that I'm building. But that's very subtle. And I think one of the things I see like more intermediate uh, testers doing is like doing TDD cycles, but growing these like very large tests sort of you know one red green cycle at a time and not quite realizing that that's not aligned with what the process is for well i mean i've certainly done that i mean you can look at the code examples in the money book and and one of them definitely gets out of control with a lot more setup than i'm super comfortable with in part because in an instructional mode where the focus is on the code i didn't want to get too bogged down in creating a lot of small intermediate objects that would be hard to explain. Right. And and that comes back to this this idea that like bigger procedural things are easier to understand in one reading than lots of small objects. And so in a didactic setting like that, then having it in the money book big examples with big tests seems, you know, actually quite sensible, right? 
I, I definitely hear you, and I think that you're right in terms of a developer with an intermediate like skill in testing tends to run into this thing like where they even get like once they get set up, once they get comfortable with like the red green refactor flow, things just tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you can sort of see the test as being like the tip of the iceberg. And that's this, they still arrive at this really convoluted implementation underneath, right? Of, uh, ever growing more and more private methods and maybe, maybe spin off objects and stuff. Whereas that's not our practice. And, uh, what I've practiced. Certainly not our practice at our best. Yes. I guess what it is is like, for me personally, my workflow of doing like outside in test driven development that was informed by the London XP group of, uh, like Steve Freeman and Nat Price. Uh, growing up to oriented software is the reference right, for that, right? Yeah. Although I've deviated enough that, that Nat has asked me to stop referencing him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I call it discovery testing now, but like the idea is I assume that a problem needs to be broken down when I'm at the top of the call stack. And my first test is just asking myself what two or three dependencies would I need to implement this thing. Use test doubles to like, just like write an isolated test of fake things and make sure the thing calls those three things. And I keep repeating that sort of reductive exercise until, like, the function that I'm describing is so simple that it would never take more than three or four tests to fully utilize. And that way, like, the test is actually informing, like, you're going to shake out, like, a, a tree of objects and functions that are that are really, really tiny and really focused and really well-named right? to avoid the eventuality of, oh, shit, I wrote, like, a hundred tests that were focused entirely on implementing the behavior as fast as humanly possible, and now I've got this big, gnarly mess... That's also difficult to refactor, but hey, at least I have these tests, which is where I think 90% of people end up with TDD. You know, I say this because I've certainly been there. Like you wind up, if you don't do it that the, the way that Justin was saying, then you wind up with a test that has a lot of setup and probably runs slowly and is a little bit hard to figure out when it goes wrong because you just add individual pieces of setup one by one as the logic uh, gets more complicated. And and that's what, what leads people to sort of conclude. Like I think people are a little bit the way in which you separate a problem into small testable units, I think, is either counterintuitive or not super natural to a lot of developers or, or maybe the way a lot of developers are taught. And I think that that, that that makes it hard to try and test a complicated kind of feature because I don't think people practice breaking a problem out into testable pieces. So, so I, think, I think there's another factor at play there. It was interesting when Justin was talking about Lots of small units and having having to name them and so on. One of the one of the things that popped into my mind is this idea that like the frameworks that we use kind of give us this position that those are the only places that you're allowed to put code. But like the things we're talking about force you to have many many other places to put your code, like apps you know with an app services directory or a lib directory that's full of tons of tiny files. And I think a lot of people are very hesitant to do that because structuring those things is actually pretty difficult, right? The moment you go like outside of the framework, well-defined places to put code, you have to work out how to do that yourself. And that is actually a difficult thing to do. So there's also like... Because the framework was designed to solve that problem. Right, right. But there's some sort of trained resistance there because people love their framework so much. And that's not a bad thing, but it is just sort of another contributing factor to why I think some people sort of, it takes a mindset shift to get to this place. Point of order, I think loving anything about software is a bad thing. <laughs> I think that there's a genuine learned 
uh, reluctance to do that. I think that because, like, if you, especially if you've been a Rails programmer for a couple of years and you've seen projects get super messed up because they tried to go outside the framework, probably tried to go outside the framework in a bunch of different ways that don't really play super well together. Right. And you wind up with code that, that is very hard to get your head around. And, and to have us come and say, well, all you need to do is, is create objects outside the framework. I think, you know, people are going to raise eyebrows at that based on their own experience. Right. Exactly. I mean, that certainly I've seen applications where they have all the usual framework buckets and then a folder called app services and everything else lives in app services. And it's just, you know, a dumping ground for any plain old Ruby object you care to name. It frustrates me that, that the perennially like most difficult issue with people improving at testing is people improving at basic code organization of files and folders. Well, uh, methods and classes, really. I mean, they're, I mean, unless you're doing yeah. small talk, they're the same thing. Like my, my frustration yeah, I is I think that as programmers, our job first and foremost is essentially to like convert business processes into a taxonomy, <laughs> whether that's of behavior or, or of data. And we're doing ourselves and our colleagues a disservice if we just assume that like, you know, the best taxonomy for everything is like one big gigantic flat bucket. But that's somehow where everyone ends up or the vast majority of people end up when they're using a framework like Rails because it's like, well, we, we, we are a prescription for like, you know, here's these three buckets for this common set of problems. But the common set of problems is about network IO and rendering HTML to a string. It's not about whatever the business needs. Like that's still on us to come up with our own custom buckets for every single domain that we work in, right? Yeah, I think that that's fair. I, I think it's also, I think, a little relevant actually that TDD really started in a small talk environment. Since you brought it up, like, have you ever, have you recently had the opportunity to work in a TDD small talk environment just as a toy? Either of you? I think I, I have never actually programmed small talk. So one of the things about TDD and small talk, especially as compared to TDD and Rails where you're building up the framework, is it is fast. It is incredibly fast. Everything's already loaded. The code's already loaded in. Like in some sense, if you've only done command line RSpec test development against you know, loading the whole rail stack, you have not had the kind of experience that like Kemp Beck was originally writing about where you push a button, you know, you're in the small talk editor and you push a button and you get green or red in milliseconds. And going back to that, because I wrote a toy program in there a while back, going back to that after having been in Ruby and Rails for so long was really interesting because it, it really does change the cost benefit analysis of writing a small test and running your tests when they happen in under a second as opposed to, you know, 15 minutes. If it's faster to use a REPL to answer the question of, if I do X, will I get Y? People will use the REPL, and then as soon as the REPL session's over, it goes away forever. But if it's equally right. best to just codify that in a quick test or check, like it is in Smalltalk, or even, you know, like environments like Java where your IDE, maybe you just hit, like, Control-R or something, and it'll run the test of the file under there in half a second it definitely reduces that cost, right? I think one thing that's worth noting, though, is that, like, it is possible to achieve that for your isolated tests in a Rails application. Uh, you, you just have to be, like, pretty disciplined about, you know, what parts of the framework you load. So that's, that's why RSpec now separates, like, Rails helper and spec helper, and spec helper just, you know, loads only RSpec. And then it's up to you to do the rest. So, like, you don't even get the active support constant loader when um, 
you load the spec helper, so you have to like manually require your isolated test file. But that does also mean that if you're running like that and you have your editor set up, you can you can get that sort of like uh, make a change and run all of your tests in like a couple seconds cycle, right? In fact, uh, if you're a mini test person and not an RSpec person, RSpec has the benefit that you know you, it controls the CLI. But for mini test users, they're stuck with Rake. Right. And rake under Rails 4 and later always loads your Rails application. So the bottom, uh, is already quite high and only gets higher as the application starts adding more gems and becomes more complex for its initial load time. Right. And I recently actually had to write a blog post. I think I called it like rake without Rails about setting up a second rake file because I was using Minitest and I found that it is very, very difficult. And so you need, you almost need a helper to not only convince you that this fast feedback loop really matters. But to help you with the drudgery of the custom one-off setup, because literally everything is fighting you to write isolated tests. Right, exactly. Like, I think Rails is perhaps one of the least amenable environments to doing this you could possibly hope to use. Right, which gets back to the Rails way and, like, the Rails way is still being very successful in a lot of different environments. But obviously not designed for this one, I think, is fair to say. One thing I'd like to talk about is the different test tools, uh, especially in the Ruby community. And I think that at one point, it was pretty common to say, oh, it doesn't matter what tool you use, just test. And I think there's some truth to that. But I also think that, that the tool you choose is going to have some effect on the way you think about tests because of what it provides and what it doesn't provide. I think that's absolutely fair. I... And in the position where nearly every single time I give a conference talk, somebody asks me, like, sort of as a troll, when should I use RSpec versus when should I use Minitest? And, like, I've taken to try and be as overwhelmingly reasonable as possible when responding to this question. So I, I, t- I usually say that, like, Minitest is very stripped back in what it offers you. And so that actually forces you to write your production code in a a very specific way. Like it has a much less powerful mocking and stubbing framework, which basically fundamentally changes the way you have to structure your code. That's where I bounce on Minitest at the moment is the stub framework. Right. So, so, and the the correlation to that is RSpec has an all powerful mocking framework that can do basically anything. And so it's actually much more amenable to testing legacy code, but it also has a bunch of constructs in it that you probably don't want to use if you're writing new code from scratch. And so it's sort of like a trade-off, and picking one of those two sort of depends on your context. And I'll go a step further to say that it is a long-trodden point of disagreement between Sam and I on whether or not test doubles are actually useful or advisable under legacy code scenarios. Sam tends to prefer them, and I, I tend to say, don't use fake things in an environment where you have very low confidence already. Instead, focus that time on, on identifying a seam that you can test as realistically as possible. I think that's fair. Okay. But in terms of the tool choice, how do you see the difference between the minimalist tool and the maximalist tool, Justin? For me, I think that Dan North's post about uh, how he organized his JUnit tests sort of at the beginning of 2006... The key insight that was like the granddaddy of behavior-driven development or BDD was simply, man, what if instead of just like making my test subordinate to my code in terms of how I organize it, instead the test is organized around what should the code be doing? So I'm prompted and I'm framing and I'm thinking, 
it should do this when this happens. It should validate this when, you know, the phone number is, is, is wrong. And then write all your tests in that format until you run out of ideas of what the code should do. And that was really the start of BDD. And that it, it, it first born JBehave and then Cucumber and tools like RSpec. And then, of course, because of RSpec's influence from the Ruby community into JavaScript, Jasmine and Mocha were born out of the same sort of, you know, prompting where there's this DSL that's trying to get you to describe in kind of holistic or separate terms what the purpose of the code is so that you're divorced from the implementation details and you can just sort of like look at it in terms of what am I accomplishing with the code. And all of that is fantastic and really useful framing. And it comes at the cost of never ending indirection and difficulty of debugging and less useful stack traces and less useful tooling like C tags. And what I've found over the last decade is that the framing and the prompting did change my behavior at the outset. And then uh, that benefit had diminishing returns, but the cost never really went down. Uh, so I've I've slowly moved back to uh, more minimalist style of testing tools. Like I wrote one that still supports nested cascading example group types called TeenyTest for Node.js. But otherwise, when I'm in Ruby, I tend to use Minitest despite the fact that I can't nest just to take advantage of the fact that tests are methods and I can use ctags and I can use uh, uh, navigate my environment way faster. When there's a failure, I can see the stack, and it's an honest thing. You would love the original SUnit, Justin. It's very minimalist. Got to start somewhere. So, Sam, how would you react to my journey? I think it's entirely fair. I will say the the one thing that you lose with uh, a framework that doesn't have nesting is is sort of the ability to strongly deduplicate your example, like your tests. But to some degree, we've sort of covered writing small tests anyway, and so, like, that benefit is smaller, as you sort of pointed out, as you write those really small tests. I think the, the one thing I really like about RSpec and its style of framework is the sort of uh, full English string uh, that you put in, in you know, your test descriptions, whereas like writing something that looks a little bit like English as a Ruby method name uh, has always bugged me, but it's, it's more an aesthetic choice than it is anything else. I don't like disagree with anything that you said uh, it's just not my preference yeah and i yeah i have to agree like uh, if you have a, a test uh, method string that's like longer than 20 characters or six or seven words it's pretty ugly you know the the converse is it's a healthy pressure to keep them short and not have too many examples and keep your objects small totally i think one of the things uh, i like to do with teams where i'm sort of trying to help them level up their testing practice is uh, run the RSpec documentation formatter and then print it out and have them like actually read it back to themselves. And you'd be surprised like how often you just get total nonsense when all those strings are sort of concatenated together. Yeah, I could see that. I think that being able to nest test is also a place where I bounce off of mini test, but it is a feature that you can easily overuse and, and make things really hard. I think just in general, test setup, uh, and test setup that winds up being far away from the actual test is a very powerful feature that is really easy to overuse. Right. So so I know, for example, uh, the good folks at ThoughtBot like to actually, even when they are nesting, duplicate out uh, all the constructions. So it's, you know, right there in the test. They call this the mystery guest. I have been convinced by this, but I think that sort of comes back to the idea of writing smaller tests. Whereas, you know... Uh, if you're writing a big one, then having to like scroll all the way up the file to look at what the test subject is and then come back down and scroll maybe halfway up to find one of the pieces of your data you're using can definitely get problematic quickly. 
And I think for me, in terms of just style points and comprehensibility, I've always tried as hard as I can to get, because typically like test lines of test code versus lines of production code ranges somewhere between 1.5 lines of test code per line of production code to three or four, right? And I want it to look as symmetrical as possible. So like my ideal would be I've got a, let's imagine a 30 line file listing of a Ruby class with a single public method on it. And I would love to have a 30 line test that was exactly symmetrical uh, to that thing. And if there's a lot of branching, then I understand it's going to be two or three times, you know, longer because there's more test methods. But one of the things that I really like about the the nesting approach is that you can dry up that common setup across all the different types so that you're not repeating yourself a whole bunch. But if you're diligent about it and focused on keeping things really short, what it results in is you can just keep these two listings side by side and immediately know exactly what's happening on both sides. And that, unfortunately, is just not how very many people really seem to use nested test example groups in practice. Right. I think the the sort of other thing is that when you when you're working in a less powerful testing framework for for more for more sort of beginner and intermediate testers there can be this driving effect to write more integrated tests uh because you don't have the same capabilities of isolation i i often see people being like i'm just gonna write a request test for every single piece of behavior in my application and that comes back to the sort of cost benefit situation okay we're 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 pretty much at time or near time so i will unfortunately because i'm enjoying this unfortunately kind of stop us there but if you guys want to say one or two quick resources or tips that people can take away and 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 start to look at now uh that people could take away from this and 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 start applying quickly to their day-to-day code if you have something like that sam so i think uh sandy metz's magic tricks of testing talk is probably very good justin has a great little repository on github which is a list of testing smells so i'm gonna take that one off him, so he has to tell us about something different. And I actually... That's a good one, I like that. This is me being excessively complimentary towards Justin, but I also think his talk, How to Stop Hating Your Test Suite, is is probably the sort of seminal piece. Like, if you were to just watch that over and over again, that would level you out of beginner and into intermediate pretty quickly. Justin, what do you got? (laughs) Now I feel bad that I don't have, like, two Sam Fippen citations uh, right in front of me. If I could provide one piece of advice to anyone listening to this conversation, especially if they feel a little bit lost, especially if they feel like they were being condescended, maybe particularly by me when I was uh, chastising people for just putting everything in Rails buckets, my advice would be find some little problem, find some toy that you want to write, some little like CLI or script in your spare time, and instead of implementing it in a Rails app, just type bundle gem and then make up a name and practice. Practice whether it's with RSpec, practice whether it's with Minitest, and invent your own, uh, you know, way of organizing code in uh, uh, and tests such that you're able to break these things down. Because you need a safe space to practice if, if you're not already really good at that. And if you're not really good at that, almost all of our advice about how to how to cope with testing beyond just using the out-of-the-box, like, Rails test helpers is going to ring hollow or, or seem frustrating. So that would be my, I think, one action item I, w- I would give anyone who, who listened to this and found themselves kind of tense. There's one, <laughs> one thing I wanted to bring up is I, I recently had uh, an opportunity to go back and reread uh, the original Kent Beck and Gamma Test Infected essay. Program is called uh, J-Unit Test Infected. Programmers Love Writing Tests. And one of the things that's kind of striking about that is it's not very doctrinaire about writing the tests first. 
but it is pretty doctrinaire about writing tests and code in small pieces, right. whichever one comes first. And that kind of resonates with something that I've thought for a long time, which is that the small, the writing code in small pieces is actually the most important part yeah. of the test. My piece of advice would be to, to like find that essay and read it. Um, and then also, as you're trying to test stuff, really try to focus on going back and forth between the tests and the code more rapidly than you probably are doing so right now. Because I think that that's going to be something that's going to focus you towards smaller methods and smaller tests. Totally. I agree. I think the most important point to just pull out there, at least for me, is like being really, really prescriptive about how you write your tests on a day-to-day basis isn't super helpful. Like I change that nearly every day, uh, sometimes multiple times a day, depending on what I'm doing. But also understanding why all the prescriptive practices are prescriptive as they are is also very helpful. Okay. And with that, let's take us out. Uh, thanks to Justin and Sam for being with us. Um, this is the Tech Done Right podcast from TableXI. You can find it at techdoneright.io, or you can download it via iTunes, hopefully by the time you hear this, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can send us email at techdoneright at tablexi.com, all one word. Uh, or you can follow us on Twitter at Tech Done Right, which in that case is underscores, tech underscore done underscore right. The Tech Done Right podcast is brought to you by TableXI, a design and software development company in Chicago. Uh, we are 35 meticulous and curious minds with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences. Our partners trust us to create innovative solutions that drive their business forward. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Bye.